Welcome to Sparking Wholeness, where we talk all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Erin Carey. I'm a survivor of bipolar disorder and a self-proclaimed nutrition nerd who loves asking why. As a certified integrative nutrition health coach, my goal is to help people find balance, and I want to help you find ways to spark wholeness in your life. For more information, check out sparkingwholeness.com or on the Instagram handle, Sparking Wholeness. And now, get ready for today's awesome show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Sparking Wholeness. This is Erin Carey. And today, I am super excited to dive into the world of nutritional psychiatry. And I am sitting here with Dr. Uma Naidu. She is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, professional chef, and nutrition specialist. Her niche work is in nutritional psychiatry, and she is regarded both nationally and internationally as a medical pioneer in this more newly recognized field. Featured in the Wall Street Journal, ABC News, Harvard Health Press, Goop, and many others, Dr. Uma has a special interest on the impact of food on mood and other mental health conditions. In her role as a clinical scientist, Dr. Naidu founded and directs the first hospital-based clinical service in nutritional psychiatry in the USA. She is the Director of Nutritional and Lifestyle Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital and Director of Nutritional Psychiatry at the Massachusetts General Hospital Academy while serving on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Naidu graduated from the Harvard Longwood Psychiatry Residency Training Program in Boston, during which she received several awards, some of which included a Junior Investigator Award, the Leadership Development for Physicians and Scientists Award, as well as being the very first psychiatrist to be awarded the coveted Curtis Prout Scholar in Medical Education. Dr. Naidu has been asked by the American Psychiatric Association to author the first academic text in nutritional psychiatry. In addition to this, I'm really excited about this one, she is the author of the new title, This Is Your Brain on Food, which was released August 4th this year, 2020. In her book, she shows the cutting-edge science explaining the ways in which food contributes to our mental health and how a sound diet can help treat and prevent a wide range of psychological and cognitive health issues from ADHD to anxiety, depression, OCD, and so many others. So thank you so much, Dr. Uma, for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me, Erin. It's lovely to talk with you. I'm excited to see you too. Yes, this is going to be great. And so I'd love to just get started with, you know, somebody might be listening and going, wait, nutritional psychiatry, I've never heard of that. So can you explain a little bit about what that is? Sure. So, you know, um, Erin, this is an interesting one because nutrition and mental health, uh, nutritional psychiatry are words that have only been used more recently in the last decade. Um, And people tend to consider this a more nascent field in mental health, but individuals have been studying different nutrients like folate, methylfolate, magnesium, vitamin D, omega-3 fatty acids. And some of the seminal research in these different um, areas of nutrition were done at the hospital where I work at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston by many of my mentors. Um, So it's been around, it was part of the conversation for a very long time and has been. Um, my particular practice really developed because when I was in residency, I um, felt that my patients, especially growing up in a Hindu family and being exposed to mindfulness meditation, Ayurvedic practice, my grandmother telling me what, what spices to have if I had a cold <laughs> and, you know, those types of remedies, um, 
I really felt when I was learning about psychiatric medications and diagnoses at residency in Harvard um, that individuals needed more than just a pill. While they need that, you know, as a prescription to feel better, there were other ways that they needed they needed to know whether it was lifestyle. And one of the things that struck me was that the side effect profile of the medications was quite extreme in certain cases, and different individuals respond differently. So why why am I not counseling them about what I've learned in nutrition? And that really became for me part of that conversation, which in my practice has been going on for quite some time. Um, the opportunity to call that nutritional psychiatry and bring it forth in a clinic really came with those same mentors supporting me to do so. Um, and I, I think that um, the, the evolution of the research around the gut microbiome is also what has made it much more valuable for people to know about. Yes, definitely. And I love how you include all of those tools, as I like to say, lots of tools in the toolbox. Right. That's what we need to get better. That's what we need. And, and exactly. I love that. And like you even said, the spices and meditation, um, I, I love all of those things. So yeah, so how did you, I, I know that you are a triple threat is what you've been called before, right? Because definitely. you definitely have the medical experience, but you're also a chef, a professional chef. Like you have yes. been trained with food. So maybe you yes. can explain a little about how that came about. Sure. So it, it goes, you know, it goes back to my family of origin. I grew up in a very large uh, South Asian or Indian family. Many cooks in the kitchen, grandmothers, aunts, older cousins, uh, mothers. And so I didn't really need to cook. I hung around, I watched everyone cooking, but my mom, who was a double-boarded physician and understood science, knew that I loved science. So she taught me how to bake. So when you, when you, when you switch to, you know, me moving to Boston, and moving away from my family, um, the one thing I could take were my family recipes, spices, ideas of food, would email my mom and ask her for the recipes and that type of stuff. So dairy became something that I enjoyed doing. So at the end of a busy day of studying, I wasn't upset to go to the kitchen. I was looking forward to that being almost my stress relief, my mindfulness yeah. time. And that was important to me, but I also, um, you know, didn't have much money and and could we couldn't afford cable television um so julia child was my food hero because she was the person cooking on public television you know and it was a french chef and those series still run by the way um and i it helped me gain a certain confidence in cooking and this journey of my own that you know she did it uh, as a second career and she was very funny and very very smart so i loved that had a very, made a very big impression on me. And when I realized that she was the patron of the school I eventually studied at and that she did this later in life and, and loved it, I thought, well, why not me? You know, it doesn't mean, why, why do I have to be just wed to a career as a psychiatrist and having studied nutrition? Why don't I? And that's really what took me to culinary school. And I have to say, I can't really figure out thinking back how I managed that amount of work or those number of hours, because um, I was still practicing. I was still practicing as a physician. And um, I, I, had to, I, I had to have loved it because I enjoyed it. I was not exhausted. I was tired just from, you know, working and doing, doing long uh, culinary labs, which is what they called, um, for many hours of cooking, you know, studying and all of that. But I think it, 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 
I think when you are driven by a certain passion, a lot of those things like time and space get blurred because you're really in the moment and you're enjoying it. And that's how culinary school came, came to be. Um, and although I went for the purpose of really expanding my education and learning more about food, it became an important part of the work I was doing, uh, which, which wasn't planned. You know, it, it became an additional tool that I could share with, with patients, with clients, um, around how to feel better if by just sharing a simple recipe, you know, how, how you can use this ingredient or something else to, um, to improve your, your emotional well-being. Yeah. And, and then, you know, going back to what you said at the very beginning about the gut microbiome, um, maybe you could explain, because I know that what we eat, what we consume, you know, the types of food we consume, all of that seems to be connected to our mental health, but that is a little bit newer. So could you explain a little bit about the gut health connection to our mental and emotional health? It can. Um, so, you know, I think that people do not always realize that um, they don't make the connection between how we eat and how we feel emotionally through the brain. They might say, I, I feel terrible. I went and ordered fast food today. But they don't actually realize that there's a connection to the brain and emotional well-being. Many people know from their doctors um, that they should eat a certain way for cholesterol or a family history of diabetes, but they don't necessarily know this in mental illness. And the purpose of really writing this book and breaking it down for people and, and hopefully making it understandable is that the gut-brain connection is quite significant. And it starts off in the embryo. You know, the gut and the brain form from the same types of cells, and even though they're located in different parts of the body, they're connected by a nerve called the vagus nerve. And I like to call the vagus nerve the, a two-way superhighway. Um, and the reason is that there's, bi there's bidirectional, there's communication both ways between the gut and the brain and the brain and the gut. And so that's one aspect of understanding it. Another important aspect of understanding it is that serotonin is known as the happiness hormone. If um, you know about any type of psychiatric medications, many of them act through serotonin. So serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac or Zoloft. Well, more than 90% of the serotonin receptors are in the gut. So I think that's also helpful for people to know. In addition, for current times, it's really important for people to understand that a large amount of our immunity is in the gut. So that's another reason to be eating in a healthy way because you want to make sure that your immunity is strong and fortified. You also want your mental health to be fortified. Just last month, um, I saw a report, actually in, uh, a couple months back, the CDC had some uh, very scary statistics around mental health. Um, suicide is on the increase. Depression is on the increase. Anxiety. And we also know from the fact that Zoloft went on shortage in June in the country. The, the fact that so many people now are struggling. And since we have to eat every day and it's something that we have within our control, my feeling about moving forward during this pandemic with all the uncertainty is food can be something that you use as prevention. That, you know, you can stave off mental health symptoms or you can improve mental health symptoms that you might have developed 
by how you eat. And obviously there's a fine line between severity of illness and, 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 and using when to use nutritional strategies first. And by that, I mean, very simply, if you're suicidal, manic, psychotic from and losing touch with reality, acutely ill, obviously going to the hospital, going to an emergency room, getting immediate help is important. Doesn't mean food has to be excluded from that discussion, but food is not necessarily going to get you out of that state immediately. And that's where you might need more help. And you can, you continue the conversation around improving your diet as well. Yes, that is so, so important. And I'm glad you bring that up. I was recently speaking to a friend who had just come out of a hospital situation because her mm-hmm. moods had gotten to a point during, during this time, this, this pandemic sure. time, she just needed some extra help. So she went to a hospital and one of the things she said going out and she did get a lot better, but she was really disappointed with the food. The food yeah. that they fed her was not what she would consider you know, brain boosting. And mm-hmm. so I think that it's really important to draw awareness to this because like you said, what we eat very much has an impact. I mean, I feel it, you know, we exactly. all can feel, I feel one piece of cake and my brain gets buzzing. You know? That's right. Um, exactly. I mean, we, we've all had it. Uh, we've all experienced that feeling where, mm-hmm. you know, we eat something and we know there's a different feeling in our body, but we don't associate that feeling with, you know, the brain and, mm-hmm. and what the longer term impact could be. Yes. Yes. And I, and I think that that's really important that it's not just about like, oh, I feel different from day to day, but what mm-hmm. am I doing long-term for sustainable mental health? So exactly. I think that that's so good to bring up. So do you think that there are any specific foods right now in our modern American diet that are really contributing us to, um, or, or contributing to more anxiety, more depression for people? There are. Um, in, in, in my book, I'd separate out into chapters, as you know, but I also talk about foods to embrace, um, so to add on to your diet, and foods to avoid, to know that you shouldn't be eating them. Um, so, for example, it turns out that there are nitrates in processed meats that you may not be aware of that worsen depression. Um, we know the big ones, but I want to take it a step further and explain what the actual studies show. So people know that we have to be careful around sugar because of either weight gain or family history of diabetes. But sugar, and I'm not yet, I'm not talking about natural sugars that we might get in, you know, some blueberries. I'm talking about added sugars and processed sugars and, and high, uh, high uh, fructose corn syrup, which is often added to foods. Um, sugar's actually been linked to depression and it worsens depression. And it's, it's at the level of the brain. In addition, sugar worsens anxiety. It's been shown in research trials. So if you struggle with either of those, it's just not a good substance that it's, it, this is just not, it's not going to help you. The other thing is that in the moment of, say, having a bowl of ice cream or having a piece of cake, you know, a person actually might feel, wow, that was delicious. And it is, you know, they, they might feel it. And that feeling is real. But the impact on the brain over the long term is what we have to watch for. So it's not that moment when someone says, hey, that, you know, I don't know why my doctor's telling me not to eat this. It's, it's, I feel great. Um, it's the longer term impact on the brain that we have to worry about. So um, sugar is a big one, you know, nitrates I mentioned. And then it becomes, you know, processed and ultra processed foods. So anything in a box, a frozen food that, you know, is a frozen dinner, um, uh, you know, uh, shelf stable items, pastries, cookies, breads, crackers, 
that have a lot of preservatives in them just do not help us out. And also colorants and dyes, um, as well as fillers, these do not help our brain function better. Um, so I, sh I share with people that, um, you know, when they see a food label and it has names that they cannot pronounce, it's usually something they want to stay away from. Um, so, so those types of foods are, are ones to worry about. Trans fats in food have been associated in study, uh, in research with increased aggression. So here's one good reason, especially in current times, to stay away from foods with a lot of trans fats. And, you know, the, the last one, um, the last two, actually, there's artificial sweeteners um, the tend to drive anxiety and other conditions. Um, and the two that, you know, when I say to people, when you, if you really can't get off sweets and you must use a sweetener, because of the relationship with insulin, I suggest stevia or erythritol. But stevia does worsen anxiety. So it's really about your exact symptoms and an individualized, personalized treatment plan for you. Because it does worsen anxiety in, in those conditions. But if you had to choose a sweetener over others, those two are healthier because of their relationship with insulin. Um, and then the final one is processed vegetable oils. And I think that, you know, that's, that's a big one. Because what happens is if you're eating unhealthy oils, they in, they impact the omega-3, omega-6 fatty acid ratio. And when you have a lot of uh, processed vegetable oils, you don't want the omega-6 going high um, in that ratio because then you start to develop things like inflammation in the body. Yeah, that's fascinating information. I wanted to ask, you mentioned dyes. Have you seen, I have a child, I have three kids actually, but one of my kids is really sensitive to food dyes. And I've often wondered because I haven't noticed in myself an immediate reaction like I do with him, but have you known adults to be sensitive to food dyes in the way that a lot of our kids are showing sensitivities? People definitely have, they have responses, I would say. Responses, it's not necessarily okay. sensitivity or food intolerance, but they, they have, they, they feel differently. You know, if they don't mm -hmm. realize that there's a colorant or a dye in something, it, it hasn't occurred to someone that mm -hmm. it's in there. Um, so definitely, uh, I, I, you know, I always pay attention when someone recognizes an association because it's their body. It's how they feel. We have a mostly unique microbiome. So your response may not be the same as mine. So I pay attention when people report these things to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that and I, I think about like MSG. There, there are so many that I've heard it, of that people are... And then, exactly, I'm sorry. The other thing to mention is that there are also uh, items, food label items like sugar and MSG that get labeled with multiple other names. So Thank sugar you. has yeah. at least, exactly, sugar has at least 200 other names. And I would strongly encourage your listeners to um, look on the internet for Google the other, the 200 names so that you know on a food label where sugar is hiding as an ingredient that you don't realize is sugar. Mm. Um, and same thing with MSG. Glutamates are sometimes, you know, they have many, not 200, but many other names. And if you don't realize it, you may be consuming glutamate and it's obviously been shown in certain conditions to worsen your symptoms. So it's just, just one of those things to be aware of on food labels. 
Yeah, no, definitely. There's a, there's a lot. I mean, I think people just need to, we got so used to back, you know, 20 years ago, whatever was reading nutrition facts, like for calories and fat and all yes. that. We forgot to look at all of the ingredients and some of those That's ingredients right. are like, there's 40 things on there, you know, that we're feeding exactly. to our kids. It's a paragraph. So, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. That's really important. Um, I want to ask you a little bit, you have one section in your book that I just thought was so, I was so, so grateful that you put it in there because um, there is there seems to be a little bit of an increase in food obsession, like orthorexia. Mm -hmm. And because I'm very concerned about mental health, eating disorders are, that's part of mental health. And so how, mm -hmm. how do we find that balance of trying to eat healthfully, but not taking it into an obsession where it's interfering with our mental well-being? Absolutely. I think that's a great question, Erin. You know, eating disorders are uh, a whole, as you well know, a whole other set of diagnoses in, in mental health and in DSM-5. And for the most part, um, I, I will work with people who have recovered for many years from an eating disorder and really want to embrace a healthier relationship with food is the way I term that. Mm -hmm. um, not just how they eat, but a relationship with food. But, but when someone's struggling with an eating disorder, it's um, not an appropriate type of referral for me because, you know, what we're trying to do is when they have an acute um, eating disorder, it's not that dissimilar from suicidal ideation or mania, I would argue, because sometimes individuals are very sick and they're really struggling with a very painful relationship with food, mm -hmm. either restricting or binging or combination. Um, so I, if I get such referrals, I will help them get into seeing an eating disorder specialist. But when it comes to orthorexia, um, I end up with a lot of referrals um, around that. And it can be quite challenging because these are individuals who are embracing healthy lifestyles. But I've had, uh, and I think I mentioned this in the book, I've had people, you know, tell me that, I, and I have, you know, a Whole Foods healthy eating plan, pillars that I that I want everyone to, to use, pillars of um, nutritional psychiatry and mental health. And then I have specific foods for specific diagnoses based on what's symptoms someone has. And I've had, you know, individuals with orthorexia kind of scoff at that because it's either too simple or too mundane. Um, and, you know, they're missing the, the, the forest for the trees because it's, if you, if you don't have those things built in and you are just excluding entire food groups because you've read in a magazine or you've heard that that's something you should exclude and you're just so finely managing every single calorie, it becomes an obsession and it's not actually healthy because you may be excluding, let's say, healthy greens or beans and legumes and, you know, everything in moderation. Unless you're allergic or have an intolerance, everything in moderation is something you should be eating. And technically, we shouldn't need a multivitamin if we're eating that way. The truth is that most of us are not. So many of us will take a multivitamin. And that's where orthorexia can be very challenging. And sometimes I will share with you that they are not people who can be brought onto a healthy nutritional psychiatry plan because they don't want to change some of those habits. Um, and, and those habits can be very rigid. Yeah. So in that case, that would be somebody who would maybe need to seek treatment first for that. 
before? Well, certainly, certainly at least behavioral, you know, do, do more psychotherapy and mm -hmm. behavioral work or come to terms with what that is. It may not be the extent to which an eating disorder may present with, say, restricting food. Mm -hmm. But I have noticed with individuals who have orthorexia, they can be very, very rigid around the rules that they set up around being healthy. So they might be eating a healthy lifestyle, but they just won't eat a certain food group. Or they mm -hmm. just, you know, so, and, and that can be, that can be challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, so diversity really is important for our overall diet. And how does the diversity that, that we consume in our food, how does that impact our gut microbiome diversity? That's a great question as well. Um, the way that I, I challenge my, I like to gamify things. So I challenge my patients to eat as many colors of fruit and vegetables I, that's on their what plates. I do. Yeah, I love you know, that. In a, in, in a day or a week. And that way they have fun with it and they, you know, mm -hmm. they're not feeling, and they feel like they're eating a lot of foods. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the whole things about, I don't like the word diet very much. We do use it, of course, but because people feel restricted. They feel like, oh my God, my doctor's making me give up one more food that I love, one more thing that I have to do. And by, by challenging them in a positive way and using really positive psychology as well, how, wow, I can eat 12 different colors on my plate. And that means I'm eating 12 different foods. So I'm definitely not starving my body. And the biodiversity is very important. When it comes to fruit, I would just mention that I try to suggest lower glycemic fruit um, because sometimes people are struggling with weight issues, especially if they, in, in mental health, have taken medications and had weight gain from that. Um, so berries, you know, things like strawberries or blueberries, all in moderation, and, but including fruit and, fruit and vegetables in your diet. Vegetables, you can be so much more liberal with because they're low calorie. Um, and I'm talking here about healthy cruciferous vegetables, leafy greens, peppers, and diversity. I'm not really talking about potatoes and sweet potatoes here because obviously the ones with the higher glycemic index and more starch, you want to have them, you know, really in, mod in extreme moderation mm -hmm. and really build, really build your salad and your, your side dishes around um, broccoli and broccoli sprouts and cauliflower, they all have incredibly healthy ingredients that are really good for your gut and really good for your brain. The, the biodiversity of the foods you eat improves the biodiversity of your gut. So that game of you know, having 10 or 12 different colors a week or a day in your diet helps the bugs in your gut diversify and really be healthy. Also, the other point about that, Erin, is that you can only get fiber from vegetables, fruit, beans, nuts, seeds, and legumes. You cannot get it from animal or seafood proteins. So our, our, the bugs in our gut need fiber to thrive. That's what feeds the good guys. And that's where eating these diversity of plants and um, the other ingredients I mentioned really helps those good uh, bugs to thrive in your gut and work for you than work against you. Yes, definitely. We want our gut to work for us, <laughs> that exactly. is for, especially right now. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, I, I'd love to ask a little bit more about just about your book, because I'll say, you know, for listeners who are listening, um, this book, I, what I love is that it's divided up depending on depression, anxiety, all the different mental health concerns. And there are food recommendations, there are supplement recommendations, and there, there are also recipes. So I'd love to know from you, what are some of the most important points? Because there's so much in there. What do you sure. really hope that people will take away from the book? So sure. if it's one thing 
that I would like them to take away is that the book is a guide. It's, it's, it's like having a consultation with me. And say you have symptoms of anxiety, you know, read the chapter on anxiety, read about the science behind what we're sharing. Maybe you don't want to read that. Maybe you just want to skip to the list at the end of the chapter. That's okay too. But try to use it as a way together with chapter 11, which talks about setting up your kitchen. It has some really cool lists in there. I, I couldn't help myself being a chef to help people set up if they weren't, because I remember what it was like to, yeah. you know, to leave home and um, move far away and study uh, in a different part of the world and, and not, you know, have to talk to my mom and figure out how to set this up. I've been there. I've done that. And I also learned a lot of stuff when I went to culinary school. So, you know, and the reason I say this is, is I don't mean to get off on a tangent, but studies, very big research studies have shown that when we eat our meals at home, we eat fewer calories, even if we're not following a special healthy diet. And the other thing is it's shown is that we always eat fewer calories when we eat at home versus eating out. So even if we started to make a few dishes at home, it's the place to start. And Going back to the book, you know, you can, you can look at the chapter for yourself or a family member, and then you can go to the lists in chapter 11, setting up your kitchen, the healthy, um, the types of foods, the vitamins, and the, the um, foods for certain vitamins too, because our food lists have, you know, take some vitamin C. Well, it turns out red bell peppers have some of the highest levels of vitamin C. Um, and then work through the recipes that appeal to you. Uh, because those have healthy, um, in, in, you know, healthy brain boosting ingredients in them. And, you know, I would, I, I think that if you can use it in that way, um, as though I'm, you're having a consultation with me, you look at the symptoms you have, you decide on the chapter, you start incorporating those foods. Because the good thing to know is that, you know, I'm talking about a whole foods healthy diet. I'm not saying you have to buy 10 supplements right now. What I'm saying is always discuss the supplement with your doctor, but can you start to mention, I mentioned those pillars of, pillars of mental health, or can you start eating the foods from the chapter that you've read that you could include every day and learn some recipes from that? That's, that's really how it's intended. And an aside to that is the intention behind it is also to clarify things for my patients because they get so confused by the information that they see and read. They come in my office and say, I don't know whether I'm supposed to eat this. Or I'm not supposed to eat that. I can't tell anymore. This is what the news is saying, or this is what I'm reading in you know, a certain magazine. So it's also a way to take the science and make it informational so people know it. And on that note, I would say things change all the time. So you know, since writing the book, um, the book actually is completed about a year before it's published. Is, that's just the process. Um, and so the book was completed last year. So, you know, there have been updates and, and that's why on our social media, we try to be informative. We try to tell people the most recent studies. It doesn't negate the information in the book, but there's certain things that, you know, I've learned more as I've been educated more and I've read more studies and understood. So we, we try to unpack that for people on social media by sharing updates and, you know, fun facts and, and myths and things like that. Yeah. And, you know, you touched on something just now that I really would love to ask about how important is, you know, you mentioned eating at home and how, you know, we typically, you know, it's probably better ingredient wise and, and calorie wise and all of that. But what about eating in a community, in a group with people who you care about, 
instead of eating in a rush, you know, mindfully exactly. eating. How important Absolutely. is that for our mental health? Mindful eating is one of them. I'm so glad you touched on that because it's really part of the holistic, integrated and functional approach that I use. You know, the book focuses on nutrition, but my approach in my clinic is really a holistic, functional and integrated approach. So functional looking for a root cause, you know, uh, holistic, it's meditation, mind, body awareness, good sleep hygiene, hydration, movement, um, you know, learning to you do breathing exercises, the power of just taking a deep breath when you're stressed. Maybe it's using an app to, you know, calm yourself down from a panic attack. It's, it's using that approach to feel better. And nutrition is one of, the, one of the big pillars there. But at the same time, it's also sleep. You know, if you're not sleeping well, much, many things. It's going to throw off your hunger hormones over time. You yes. know, one poor night of sleep is not going to do it, but chronic sleep will throw off your hunger hormones. So it all becomes important in this model. And what I did in the book is focused on, on the nutrition because I also feel that's something you, you can pick up the book and you can start doing today. Mm-hmm. Um, it also defines, you know, nutritional psychiatry and the work I do. But I, I also feel that, it's, it's not about judgment and it's not about people feeling badly about what they're eating or they're not eating. You can just decide today, can I give up that one fast food meal and can I replace it with a simple home cooked meal? And it doesn't have to be souffle. You know, it, it can be something simple and straightforward because now, I mean, we can make the decision in the pandemic um, to, you know, continue to order food out and, you know, even fast food places now deliver you can make that decision or you can say, look, can I just get some whole healthy foods and start making myself a salad? Can I make myself a soup? Um, you know, can I add um, a pinch, uh, pinch of black pepper and some turmeric to that? Cause I, that's a brain healthy ingredient right there. Mm-hmm. You know, can, can you start to do just something simple today? Can you add frozen veggies um, to two types of frozen veggies to your dinner tonight? Um, and frozen vegetables and fruit in this country are flash frozen. So they're actually pretty healthy. Uh, just avoid the ones that have a sauce, added sodium or syrup or something like that. And if it doesn't have a sauce packet in it, just don't use that. But you can steam those vegetables tonight. You don't even have to use your stove. Um, you know, I'm, I'm only a proponent of quick occasional microwave cooking. I mean, mm-hmm. stovetop or oven um, at the right temperature is appropriate. But, you know, we're just talking about steaming some veggies in a glass bowl, adding a squeeze of lemon so you have a side dish for your dinner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and, and that's what I, a super easy thing to, for people to do. And easy. I think that that I want to mention that because, you know, hearing you're a professional chef and, you know, you have all this training, but I, looking at the recipes, it's like, oh, I think a lot of people getting started would, would, I just appreciate you kept it pretty simple for Thank people you. who are not Th- sure. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that, that is a great thanks to my wonderful editor who, who, who's, you know, who worked with me on um, not specifically the recipe, but the concept of, you know, I, I, I know you can teach us souffle, but I think that we need to keep it. And, and I totally agreed with that because reality is that um, I, I, I want my patients to be able to make something simple 
and get started somewhere. That was me, you know, Mm -hmm. years ago. That was me not, you know, having moved away from home and not knowing exactly how to cook. So I want people to be able to start somewhere. And I relate to that experience. I'm sure it was hard for you though, wasn't it? Because I'm sure you have some really great things up your sleeve that you didn't share. (laughs) Uh, Right, right, exactly. I mean, it was certainly hard to to move away from a close-knit family and uh, to move away to study, you know. So it's, it's taking on a lot of different things. But I really found my solace in food in, in, a, in a positive way. You know, it was, uh, wow, this is one thing that reminds me of home and I can get the recipe from my mom. I can, and she had my grandmother's recipes and, you know, she had the family um, masala recipe, which is our spice blend that we use in our family. So I, you know, got the recipe that my aunt would, would, would do for the whole family. So, you know, I, I learned to make it. And, and it's, it's all those cool things that really make the journey richer for you and change your relationship in a positive way with food. And I think that it's interesting. That's another interesting to, to touch on is that there is a comfort in food and not using food as a coping mechanism, not using it, you know, to wipe out unpleasant emotions or whatever it is or binging or anything, but, but finding a comfort in the healing mm-hmm. parts of food, right? And in exactly. the process. And I think that, exactly. that is something I hope people will take away as well is just loving that process. Exactly. Well, and thank you for saying that, Erin, because you mentioned mindful eating. And I think as a doctor early on in my career, I was so rushed, so busy, um, you know, running through the cafeteria with my scrubs on, um, eating, you know, uh, not mindfully, standing and eating because it was, you know, when you can get out of the emergency room for 10 minutes to run up to the cafeteria and eat something, that was your break, you know. And I really had to unlearn those habits and realize that I had to be doing what I was telling my patients to do. So even if I packed a small lunch and, and ate it, you know, that was 10 minutes of mindfulness, you know, and really learned to take food from home, then relying on the cafeteria um, and th- little things like that to make it a more mindful practice. But it also started with my own journey in cooking and realizing that it relaxed me. And, you know, I'm not saying that's going to be the same experience. Some people don't want to go in the kitchen, um, you know, but maybe someone else, in the, someone else in the family wants to, wants to do that and, and is interested. So it's about finding that balance. You know, there are no rules in my book. It's really about offering guidance to people. Um, there are no rules. There's, there's no judgment around what you eat, whether you paleo, carnivore, or vegan. You know, there's something <laughs> that you can find that you can do because in that way, I have to be able to, especially in mental health, doesn't matter what I eat, but it does matter how I am in relationship to my patients because they're not walking in my office to feel judged uh, or to right. be scolded. <laughs> you know, uh, it's easy to do that, but it's, 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 I've, I've learned through many years of studying psychology and, and, and in psychiatry and being a psychotherapist as well. It's part of our training. That's not the way to engage people. You know, the way, the way to help people is by being open and saying, well, what, what, what can we do to help you? What can we change? What are, what are, what are three things and make things, especially where food is, in a, is something we decide. Um, we, we don't, we know we can't decide if we prescribe a medication for high cholesterol, um, you know, but we can decide what we eat. And, and I think that empowers people and they should feel that way. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Now, something I would love to ask you that it seemed to be brought up many times in the book, depending, you know, whether it was anxiety, depression, bipolar, lots of the different disorders you spoke of in the book um, is 
caffeine and alcohol. Those seem to keep mm-hmm. popping up as, as yeah. two things that probably are not the best. And I know a lot of people right now are upping their caffeine because they're not sleeping well at night due to all right. the stress. And then mm-hmm. at night, what are they doing? They're adding in more alcohol <laughs> right. because they can't go to sleep. And it seems exactly. to be the and cycle. The Right. Yeah. So maybe you can talk about the impact of those things on the brain. Sure. So I think that with caffeine, it has, um, I recently did a blog with Mind Body Green that I would Mm -hmm. prefer people to because caffeine has some very positive effects Um, and it's not all bad. But here's the thing with uh, mental well being you have to know your relationship with coffee. What do I mean by that? If you get jittery when you have a certain amount of coffee, if you don't feel good, Or the opposite, if you don't have X number of cups, you develop a headache because you're actually having caffeine withdrawal uh, or other symptoms, you you need to know what what your limit with caffeine is. So for some people, I like to suggest about 400 milligrams for the day for people. And that might be a few, uh, you know, about three smaller cups of coffee. And I suggest it early in the day. But if you have anxiety or you've noticed that you feel more jittery if you have coffee, then omit omit coffee. But if you're drinking coffee today, don't omit it suddenly and completely. You have to sort of wean off it. You know, if you're having three cups, go to two and slowly go to one. Um, Because those sudden shifts are what throw our body off, even when something as simple as as coffee. Um, So coffee is good, but it can be very uh, difficult for people who have anxiety and having it too late in the day. So after 12 noon, some experts say, some people say after 2 p.m., it depends on your body and depends on what time you go to sleep, that it doesn't affect your sleep. Um, I would also encourage people to know that caffeine is in other things that you don't realize. Decaffeinated coffee has some caffeine. Certain teas have caffeine. Certain sodas and other, other uh, beverages that we might be drinking have caffeine, but also over-the-counter headache pills. Certain certain headache pills for migraine headaches and others have caffeine. So if you're sensitive, you need to watch for it like we do with, we had the discussion about foods. You need to watch for it in other places and have it in moderation. Um, with alcohol, that's, that's harder too, because alcohol, as a psychiatrist, I know that my patient's many of my patients might be drinking alcohol. So I have to counsel them in a way that keeps them safe, um, that, that they can tell me if they're drinking alcohol because they feel judged. They're not going to tell me. I'm not going to know. They're not going to be well. Um, we used, I used guidelines based on research and based on what um, uh, governing bodies suggest. So sometimes the guidelines in, in the book might seem very high, like two drinks for a man and one for a woman every day. We're not saying that everyone is doing that. And we are not asking everyone to do that. We are offering people the research. And then we are saying, here's the issue with alcohol and with caffeine. And with alcohol, alcohol is a depressant. So if you're using a glass of wine to get to bed every night, two things, it will worsen depression if you have that or it will bring on some low mood at the least. Secondly, it will disrupt your sleep over time. It might put you to sleep initially because it has that sedating effect, but it will disrupt your sleep. So again, with alcohol, my, my guidelines around that are everything in moderation. Check with your doctor. There's certain things you should not be drinking alcohol with if you are prescribed. Um, 
in addition, um, make sure that you're adequately hydrated because alcohol withdrawal, especially if you're drinking a few too many drinks, is not good for your system. It places your entire body at risk, including for seizures. So depending on how much you're drinking, um, try to moderate that and certainly reach out for help if it's becoming a problem in this pandemic because there are people there to help you and guide you and, and help you understand what's going on with that. Alcohol also drives anxiety. So you want to be careful with thinking that it calms you down. It does, but then it can, it, it then does the reverse. It can then start making you jittery as well. So it, it, it is a fine balance. And very lastly about alcohol is if someone likes cocktails, a lot of cocktails have many different liqueurs in them. Plus they have simple syrup, which is basically sugar. Mm-hmm. And um, it's one part sugar to one part water. So, so you're having a ton of sugar in that. So I would just say, you know, stick to cleaner cocktails if that's what you have. Moderation, hydrate well, and always check with your doctor. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really good. I think that that is, is something that, you know, is not always stressed enough because we hear, oh, alcohol is good for your heart. It's good for, but again, thinking about that long term and what it does, you know, for the brain, I think that's important. Another topic that's popping up a lot in in the mental health world and talking about brain health and is um, the topic of intermittent fasting. Do you have any Mm -hmm. thoughts on intermittent fasting? If that's a beneficial thing or a not good thing? Before I get to that, Erin, I'll just say that, you know, the the studies that um, talk about alcohol usually uh, beneficial are the resveratrol, which is what's you know what is found in red wine, and in the book we try to break that down in, in a certain way. Again, as guidelines, we are not telling people to have two drinks a day. Uh, <laughs> just going to say that again uh, because based on guidelines that we researched and that kind of stuff. But thank you for making that point because there are some benefits. Absolutely, um, when it comes to intermittent fasting, I don't. I, I think that if it works for someone, I, I know that there's some wonderful doctors studying this and talking about it, and I think that it. it really depends on whether it works for someone. I think with someone who might be taking psychiatric medications, it's a little bit more concerning because, um, you know, you, you want to make sure that certain medications you need to actually take with food. Um, So I'm not, I think it's a, it's, it's, I think the evidence for mental health and intermittent fasting is still being studied and I'm not against it. I think it's perfectly fine for some people. You have to speak to your doctor And if you are taking medications for mental health, you have to be cautious and you have to discuss it with your doctor so that he or she can guide you um, knowing that fact. I wouldn't just go off and do it if you're someone taking medications. Um, And if maybe you're not taking medications and you want to improve your mental health symptoms, I don't know that we have the current research just yet um, testing that. So I can't offer you a safe opinion like I can at least the guidelines that I've provided in my book. But I'm sure that research will, will, will be coming. Right. It'd be in- interesting to see. But I think, you know, with that, and even what you said about caffeine, alcohol, again, it goes back to, we have to know ourselves and know our responses and be mindful and, exactly. and think and listen to our bodies. I think that that's really important. Um, I guess the last thing, because we're, we're running out of time, the last thing I'll ask you that I love to ask people is if you could give one piece of advice to spark someone towards wholeness, what would it be? That's a great question. I would say, ask yourself right here and now, if it's in the nutrition, let's take nutrition because my book is, this is your brain on food. Ask yourself what it is that's bothering you 
about what you're eating and can you change it? And what's one, just one simple thing that you can do. It could be as simple as I need to be drinking more water. It could be as simple as I need to eat more vegetables. It doesn't have to be, you know, taking us back to that souffle example. We, we, we're not asking you to, it, it's just something simple, but if it's bothering you, that means to me, you want to change it to become more whole. And um, you can probably do it by identifying it first and then figuring out how to do it in approaching really being, being a whole self. Because unless, you know, as a psychiatrist, unless we function as whole human beings, um, then, then it, it's very hard to only be fragments of ourselves. And I would encourage people to just start with something simple. Um, and because that's what the book is about, all related to food. But of course, you could do it in many different realms of your life. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. So how can people connect with you and get the book for themselves? Thanks, Erin. So, you know, on social media, which I'm very new to, but we, 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 we're, trying to, we're trying to encourage people along because they do seem to like the science information that we share. Um, it's at Dr. Uma Naidu, at D-R-U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O. And if you'd like to get the book, it's available now in the United States and Canada at all major retailers and resellers. And in the UK, it's launching called The Food Mood Connection on September 10th. Um, you can also just get it off of our website, which links you to the different booksellers, umanaidoomd.com, U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O-M-D.com, where if you subscribe, you'll get tons of information from us um, just by in terms of weekly newsletter, you'll find information on the site and you can just link to buy the book from there. That is great. And the book, I really, really encourage you guys. If, if you like reading information that's beneficial to you, that's also easy to digest, pun intended, but it really is. <laughs> it's broken down so well that I think even if you're new to gut health, if you're new to food as mood, you will be able to just totally take this book in and, and, I, I love it. So it's called This Is Your Brain on Food and definitely check it out. And thank you so, so much for offering your time and your wisdom and your knowledge here today. Thank you so much, Erin. Thank you for doing this and for raising awareness around mental health and these issues around nutrition. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the invitation. Thanks for tuning in to Sparking Wholeness. For more on all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul, check out my website, sparkingwholeness.com. Don't forget to be kind and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be really kind, you can leave a nice review. I like those.